right, well, good morning. Welcome, I'm glad you guys are here. Excuse me one second, I gotta figure out where I put my water. I'll just put it right here, that'll work, excellent. Well, my name is Matt Rumbaugh. I serve as one of the elders here, and I lead the small group. My wife and I lead the small group that meets in Random Hills. Holler, yeah, all right, excellent. By the way, you're all welcome to join us Thursday nights. Just let me know. We'll, we'll find a spot for you. Now, I like what I do. I like what I do here in the church. I like what I do for a living. But sometimes I can't help but feel like I missed my calling in life. Do any of you feel like, like that sometimes? I really do feel like sometimes I should have been a game show host. I think I'd be good at it. You guys like game shows? Game shows are so fun. Now, of course, the thing that makes a game show really fun is that all of them are a little bit different, right? They've got a different angle got a different distinctive. We've got what? Wheel of Fortune, where you have to be a good speller, and you have to know what the words are, and, and you got Vanna White. And somehow Vanna White looks exactly the same now as she did in 1984. I don't know how that works, but that seems to be the case. We've got the Newlywed Game. Do you guys like the Newlywed Game? Where the couple, they have to answer questions, and they get it wrong, and they usually embarrass themselves. I had a buddy who was actually on the Newlywed Game probably about 15 years ago. He really embarrassed himself. It was great. It was so fun. Uh, what's another one? Uh, we got The Price is Right. Do you guys like The Price is Right? We could do The Price is Right here, right? If I said, come on down, somebody could come. But you like, you know, you guess like the price of a blender or the big vacation package or something like that. That's fun. That gig actually came up like, what, five or six years ago when Bob Barker retired. And I really hoped they would call me, but they, they did not call me in that. But the best game show has to be, and I know I'm going to get some, uh, some amens on this, Jeopardy. Jeopardy. For one thing, it's really smart, right? Yeah. But what's the other thing that we like about Jeopardy? Besides Alex Trebek being all Canadian up there, uh, we, what's the thing about Jeopardy is we learn the answer before we know the question, right? That's what they say the show works, is you have to answer in the form of a question. So we learn the answer, then the contestant uh, poses the form of a question, and then you got like the daily and the daily double on the final Jeopardy, and you got to do the math and all that. But the thing we like about it is we know the answer before we learn the question. We're going to look at a passage this morning, Psalm 89, that uses the same device. We learn the answer before we even know what the question is. And as we're going to see this morning, both the question and the answer are very important and instructive to us as followers of God today. So uh, now Ben and the band uh, touched on our, our passage a couple times today, Psalm 89. We're going to be with that. So turn in your Bibles to that. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are going to be holding one up. You're welcome to grab that. Again, Psalm 89. I don't know what page it is in that version, but somebody can help you find it. And if you don't own a Bible at home, feel free to take that one with you. It is our gift to you, and we hope that you will use it. Now, one thing that you will notice as you look at the passage this morning, it's actually pretty long, 52 verses. So, uh, so I thought we'd just go ahead and get started. We might be here an extra hour or so. Is that okay? Do you guys have lunch plans? No? No. Okay. No. We're not going to read it verse by verse. We're going to go through, though, and hit some highlights. There are a couple things I want us to see before we actually get into the meat of the text. I want to look at, we're going to hear a lot of C words this morning. Uh, I'm just giving you a warning. So two things we want to look at before we get into the passage. One is context, and the other is uh, construction. So let's look at our context. The first question we're going to ask uh, in terms of context is, who is our writer? So who is the author of this psalm? The author of the psalm is a man named Ethan the Ezraite. I've never heard of him either. 
Yeah, Ethan the Ezraite. Now, David, we're told in, through the Psalms, is the, is the author of many, many of the Psalms. He's not the writer of this one, but he, comes, he is a very important figure, as we're going to see here in just a few moments. But our writer is this man, Ethan the Ezraite. We know very little about him from other places in Scripture. The one other place he's mentioned is 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 31. And the writer there, probably the prophet Jeremiah, is making reference to the wisdom of King Solomon, trying to explain to his audience there what a smart guy Jeremiah was. And he says he is even wiser than Ethan the Ezraite. So somehow his audience would have known who our man Ethan is, and they'd be able to make that comparison to understand exactly how smart Solomon was. So if I was using that example today, I might say something like Albert Einstein was even smarter than, what, Steve Jobs or whoever that person would be. Do you guys get it? So Ethan, really smart guy. Uh, the other thing that is important for our context is the time in which this was written. This was written during the Babylonian exile, so somewhere around 600, maybe 550, 600 years before the birth of Jesus. And you probably know a little bit, if you know a little bit of Bible history, you'll know that uh, there was this split between the kingdom, so the northern part of the Jewish people sort of separated, became the nation of Israel. The southern part became the, the kingdom of Judah. That's the part that uh, was from David's family, as we're going to explain a little bit more this morning. And somewhere in that time frame, the people of Judah were found to be unfaithful, as we'll talk about here in a little bit, and they're put into exile in this nation called Babylon. So the, the king of Babylon comes, knocks down Jerusalem, takes the best and brightest off to, to Babylon, and they're in a pretty bad state. So Ethan is writing the psalm in that moment in history. And as we're going to see this morning, that's a really important thing for us to be mindful of. Now, also, before we get into the meat of text, I want to talk a little bit about the construction, because that's going to be relevant to us. Um, I promise this will not feel like your eighth grade English class. We're not going to do like grammar or sentence diagramming or anything like that. But the way the psalm is constructed is really important for us to understand. You'll see the first, what, four verses kind of make up this little executive summary type thing. And then the rest of the psalm is broken into three sections. And we'll explain more about this as we go. Sec uh, verses 5 through 18 speak to character, specifically God's character. Part two speaks to covenant. And part three is complaint. So three C's, character, covenant, complaint. And again, I'll, I'll explain more about that as we go through here. But that's the way the psalm is organized. And again, that's going to be really important to us. Remember, we, we learned the answer before we know the question. So we'll come back to that here in a second. All right, so let's look at our intro here, verses one through four or at least verses 1 and 2 here. Ben read these earlier, but let's read them again together here. Uh, so Psalm 89, verses 1 and 2. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. So right here off the bat, our man Ethan is taking a posture of worship. Whatever his big question is, whatever his complaint, whatever it is he wants to get God's attention about, the first thing he does is worship. And he puts that right in the little executive summary. Right off the bat, he's saying, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever, and with my mouth, I will talk about God's faithfulness. Now, as we get into the passage, you're going to see that this is a really remarkable thing for Ethan to do because they are in a bad state. And yet, the posture that he takes is one of worship. Now, as we get down to verse 5, you'll see as he starts to talk about the character qualities of God, he is completely enamored of who God is. And as he calls out these character qualities, you'll see that he cannot help but have a heart of worship. In fact, what he does here in verse 5 is he actually sets a scene for us, 
He says, let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him? So he paints this picture for us where angels and heavenly beings are floating around the throne, and yet for all this wonder and amazement, we cannot take our eyes off the one who is seated on the throne. He is amazing and awesome and worthy of worship. And by seeing him and understanding who he is, our hearts respond the same way. And what's more, Ethan starts to list off many of the character qualities of God that make him so worthy of worship. Let me call out a couple of these for your attention. Verses 9 and 10, he calls out God's power. Let's look at that together. Verse 9. Whoop, I can't find it here. Oh, here it is. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. So here we have this idea of God's power, that he can do whatever he chooses. Not only does he have the power to do that and the ability to do that, he has the authority. That's the second character quality Ethan calls out for us. Verse 11, he says, The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. So he has authority. That is a character quality of God. He made the world. There's not anywhere in the earth, there's not anywhere in the universe where God is not completely worthy of submission and worship. In verse 14, he calls out God's character qualities of righteousness and justice. Look at those with me. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. So if we're to understand what it is that makes God God, what it is that a, what a philosopher might call the immutable aspects of God, righteousness is one, that he is right in all his ways. Justice is one, that he is completely just in all that he does. And then he uses these wonderful two examples here. Bear with me a second. He calls out God's steadfast love, this idea that God's love for us will go on forever and ever and ever. God cannot stop loving us because for him to do so would be a violation of his character. There's one more character quality I want to call out, but first I want to take a small detail. Oh, am I in the way? Oh, here, let me move a little bit. Sorry about that. I know I see a couple of people like trying to look around here. Sorry. All right, let me shift out of the way here a little bit so you guys can see a little better here. So yeah, I want to take a slight detour, uh, and then I want to finish off this list of character qualities of God. Look at verses 15 through 18 with me. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exult in your name all the day, and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor, our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord, our King to the Holy One of Israel. So sort of tucked in our passage here is this really important idea that you and I were made to be worshipers. That we are blessed. We are who we are called to be when we are worshiping. When we see God and understand who He is, our hearts cannot help but worship. That is who we're made to be. Two big ideas here that I want you to jot down. The first is that worship flows out of God's character not my circumstances. Worship flows out of God's character, not my circumstances. I don't know about you, but my tendency tends to be that when things are going great for me, you know, I have a really great day at work, and my daughters give me a kiss when I get home from work, and, you know, my, my baseball team has a great day or whatever. When I'm really happy and excited about something, I'm more prone to worship God. But God is not only wor worthy of worship on my good, good days, he's worthy of worship on my bad days too. 
It comes from his character, not my circumstances. That's the first thing. The second thing is that you were made to be a worshiper. You are at your best. You are your best self when you are worshiping God. Do you guys remember the movie Toy Story? That's basically canon for our culture, right? So everybody's nodding their head. Really important idea in Toy Story is this idea, what? That a toy is happiest when he's being played with by a kid. Same thing about you and I. You and I are our best self when we give worship to the Lord because he is worthy of that. That is what you were made to do. And I know some of you are thinking, gosh, I don't know, Matt. That kind of sounds like a robot. Worship, worship, worship. It's exactly the opposite. Your sin is what makes you a robot. Your sin is what enslaves you to your desires. Your sin is the thing where you can't help but feel, this is, this is who I am. This is what I do. I can't help myself. Worship and the gospel frees you to be what you were made to be, to be who you really are, and that is a worshiper. All right, last character quality of God, and this one's really important because this is going to help us turn the corner here. The last character quality I want to highlight is God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness is a foundational theme in this passage. Ethan mentions it 10 times. I won't go through, through them one by one, but just in case you want to go back in later, let me uh, throw these verses out. So you might have to write real fast. Verse 1, verse 2, verse 5, verse 8, verse 14, verse 24, verse 28. I know, this is getting tiring. Uh, verse 33, verse 37, verse 49. Ten times in this passage, Ethan calls out the faithfulness of God. So if it's such a big deal in our passage, what do we mean when we say that God is faithful? Faithful is a, a, in, in the United States, speaking in English in the 21st century, when we use the word faithful, we don't get quite the right idea of what the Bible's saying when it got, says God is faithful. When you and I say faithful, we might mean something like loyal, dependable, always there for me, reliable. You know, I might speak of my car as being faithful. My 2003 Hyundai Santa Fe, it's very faithful. It starts every time, most of the time. Um, my, you know, if you have a dog, you might describe your dog as being faithful. Every time you get home, he runs right up to the door and he's all excited to see you. You know, you might speak of uh, whatever, uh, some relations that you have, uh, maybe a friend who's, who's been with you a long time and he, he or she is very faithful. They always pick up the phone when you call, even though they can see it's you and they can ignore you if they want, but they always answer when you call. So this idea of loyal, dependable, well, that kind of sounds like a dog or like a pet or something like that. That's that doesn't quite give us the picture of God that I think Ethan wants us to see. Instead, when the Bible speaks about God's faithfulness, it has a higher and bigger idea in mind. When the Bible says that God is faithful, it means he always finishes the thing that he starts. To say that God is faithful means that he always finishes the thing that he starts. In fact, this is so foundational to the character of God that it very clearly goes in the, into the New Testament. Some of you probably have in your mind Philippians 1, verse 6, where Paul writes, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. God always finishes the thing that he starts. That's what we mean when we say that God is faithful. All right, so if God's so faithful, what is it that he is being faithful to in our passage this morning? Well, that gets us to our second C, and that is the word covenant. God is faithful to his covenant. Now, specifically, we are speaking about the covenant that God made with David. 
And that covenant is made in 2 Samuel, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're not going to turn there this morning, but you might want to make a little note and go back and read that later today. 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God has, has taken David and put him on the throne of his people Israel. And he says, David, you are my guy and you are going to be king of my people forever and ever. As long as you are faithful to execute my, my laws, someone from your line will sit on my throne forever. So God makes a covenant with David. Now, one thing we want to understand we, uh, about the word covenant, you and I tend to think of this agreement idea in terms of contract, right? So you guys, some of you might have a contract with your employer, or some of you might have signed a contract for a house or something like that. Covenant is a little bit different idea, and it's important for us to understand that to know what David and God are talking about here. For one thing, a covenant uh, would define a relationship, biblical covenant. When you sign a contract on something, you know, you have party A, you have party B, but you two don't necessarily have a relationship with each other. But if you are entering into a covenant, that covenant defines your relationship with that person. So for example, my wife and I, when we got married almost 17 years ago, yeehaw, yeah, thank you, you're cute, that's awesome, um, that making that agreement actually changed our relationship. So we go from just a, a dating couple or just a, a man and woman that kind of happen to be around to actually redefining who we are to each other. So our covenant redefines a relationship. Second thing about a covenant is that it is unconditional. If you look at a contract, usually there's some way to get out of it or there's some consequence to not fulfilling the terms. You know, party A will do this, that, the other. In the event that they do not, this, that, and this are the consequences for that. But a covenant does not do that. A covenant is unconditional. And the other thing is that a covenant has no expiration date. It goes on in perpetuity, to use a really fun legal term or financial term. Perpetuity, it goes on forever. Contracts, at least a good contract, has an end date. And, and Mr. Mucko here, who does commercial real estate, you like the end dates on that contract, don't you? Uh-huh, yeah. Because if you get into a bad contract, you want to know that you have a way out of it, right? But a covenant goes on in perpetuity. It goes on forever. So God is not signing a contract with David. He is establishing a covenant with David. We're all on the same page here? Great. Okay, so what is going on in this covenant? Look at me starting in verse 20. First thing is that God anoints David to serve his people. Verse 20, I have found David my servant with my holy oil. With my holy oil, I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. Uh, second part of the contract, God would defeat David's enemies. Look at verse 23. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. In verses 24 and 25, God promises to extend David's kingdom. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. So if you know anything about the geography of the country of Israel, the sea there is the Mediterranean, and the rivers are the Tigris and Euphrates. Those are in what we now refer to as the country of Iraq. So if you look at a map of Israel today, it's relatively narrow. But the territory that God's talking about is very wide. So he's telling about David, you're going to go from a kingdom about this big to a kingdom about this big. He's going to extend David's kingdom. Verse 27 God promises to exalt him other, over all other kings. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And finally, in verse uh, 29 here, 
He promises to establish David's kingdom forever. He says, I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. So this is a pretty good deal for David, right? His kingdom is extended. He's going to rule forever. His enemies are going to defeat it. Ah, but there is a little bit of a catch. Look at uh, verse 31. If, uh, I'm sorry, back to verse 30. If his children forsake my laws and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. So God's saying to David, hey, here's what I want you to do. And here's what I want you to tell your offspring to, to do. Keep my laws. Now, David, of course, we know, had a very deep love for the Word of God. He wrote the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119, is all about the Word of God and how much David loves to read it and internalize it and live it. But his offspring, his sons and grandsons and great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandsons didn't do so hot. They were not faithful to God's laws. They were told to follow God's laws, but did not do it. They were told not to form alliances with other countries, Egypt, Assyria, whatnot. They did not do that. They were told not to worship other gods or sacrifice to idols, and yet they did do that. So over and over again, God says to them, hey, I have a covenant with you. All I want you to do is worship me and follow my laws. And again and again and again, they violate that. And so finally, God gets to the point where he's going to discipline them. So we spoke about this earlier. God brings the nation of Babylon the emperor of Babylon destroys the city of Jerusalem, knocks down the wall, destroys their temple, takes the best and brightest into exile, leaves behind a, a remnant, but no one is there to farm the land. This land uh, that had been described earlier in the Bible as flowing with milk and honey is left fallow and empty. The, the, the rightful king is taken away. There's no one left. You, you can't go to the temple and worship anymore. It's, it's a pretty bleak place. In fact, Ethan starts to talk about this in verse 38. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his stronghold in ruins. So that gets us to our third C this morning, and that is complaint. Character, covenant, complaint. So our man Ethan, and remember, he's a pretty smart guy. He's saying, God, we know that you are great. We know that you are righteous. We know that you are just. We know that you are true. We know that you are faithful. We know that you made a covenant with David. And yet when we look around today, we see that our temple is destroyed. We see that our best and brightest have been taken into exile. Lord, this is a mess. And I have a complaint. In fact, turn with me. Well, in my Bible, I have to flip the page. You might not. Verse 46, he actually lays it all out and asks the question that we've been waiting for all morning. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old? which by your faithfulness you swore to David. So he's looking around. He's like, God, what is the deal? How can we be in this situation? How much longer are you going to wait before you make this right? Now, before we go on, you and I feel this way sometimes too, don't we? 
Mm-hmm. I do. If I do, if I do, you probably do too. Yeah, I have my moments where I'm like, God, I'm trying to do the right thing here. How come I keep getting stuff thrown in my face? How come I keep hitting roadblock after roadblock? How come, you know, how come I keep getting setbacks? Why are you doing this, Lord? How long do I have to wait? Well, this is a very good time to play one of my favorite games. Uh, the game is called Where is Jesus? And it works a little bit like Where's Waldo? Do you guys remember this? You guys remember? I think we have one, right? So you guys probably, your kids probably have this, or when you were as a kid, you saw this, right? So Waldo is this guy wearing a striped shirt, and he's hidden in this incredible background, and the trick is to to find him. I can't find him. I never could find him. I'm terrible at this game. But we'll give you a second. Anybody found Waldo? If you do, just point. Anybody find him yet? All right, Justin, you help us out? There he is. Yeah. Same principle. When we are dealing with an Old Testament passage, we want to have a where's Waldo mindset. But we're not looking for Waldo. We're looking for Jesus. If the whole Bible is about knowing and enjoying Jesus, then he ought to be showing up right about now, right? So where is Jesus? Let's look together in this passage. It turns out Jesus is the fulfillment of God's covenant to David. Uh, on an earthly sense, or in a physical sense, we know it's true. Matthew chapter 1, Luke chapter 1 tells us two important things. One is that Jesus is, is of the proper lineage of David. From his mother and father, he is born, you know, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, blah, 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 all those. We know that Jesus is the rightful heir of David's throne. We also know that he's born in Bethlehem, which was David's hometown in the city of Kings. But what's more, even by the criteria of our psalm here, Jesus fulfills it. You know, God said that he would anoint David to serve his people. Well, he anoints Jesus as well. Matthew chapter 3, Jesus is anointed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself said, the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to serve others. So Jesus is anointed to serve God's people, just like David was. God promised David that he would defeat his enemies. Well, Jesus defeats his enemies too. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 Verses 25 and 26, in fact, the verse there says that the last enemy to be defeated is death. And God says of Jesus, sit here at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. God promised to extend David's kingdom. We see that Jesus extends his kingdom. John 18, 36, when he's speaking before Pontius Pilate, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. Yeah, there's the nation of Israel. That's great. There's the whole Middle East. There's the whole world. My kingdom is even beyond that. So Jesus' kingdom goes even farther than from the Mediterranean to the Tigris and Euphrates. It goes all over. There is nowhere where Jesus is not king. God promised to exalt David above all other kings. Revelation 19, we see that Jesus is titled the king of kings. King over all kings. God uh, promises to establish David's kingdom forever. Revelation 1.6, Jesus shows up and says, I am the firstborn and I am here to reign forever. So Jesus is the finishing of the work that God started with David. And what's more, he even meets some of the criteria that's here. In fact, it's very important. How is it that he is God's finished work? Well, it's because he was afflicted. Look at what we see in our passage here. You have been cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. And we're told that when Jesus hung on the cross for you and me, that all of God's wrath was poured on him, that you and I did not have to suffer it. We see that he is uh, mocked by his enemies. Look at uh, verse 41. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. 
Some of you are probably thinking of that, that scene in the crucifixion where the Pharisees and religious leaders look at Jesus and mock him. Or even the thieves who are on the other side of him hurl insults at him as he is hanging there for their sin. And the Bible tells us that Jesus suffered for you and me. In fact, he was counted worthy because of his suffering. So this idea that God's anointed one would be afflicted, Jesus even fulfills the terms of that. And because of that, he is worthy to sit on David's throne forever. He is worthy to be considered the finishing of God's work. He is worthy to be the fulfillment of God's covenant. Not only because he is awesome and powerful and glorious, he is all those things, but because he suffered for your sake and for my sake. He took the punishment that God's people deserve back in the Old Testament, but also that I deserve today because of my rebellion to him. He's counted worthy because of affliction. Now, thankfully, the story doesn't stop there because God did not let Jesus rest in his affliction. He raised him from the dead so that he stands at the right hand of the Father. And in doing so, he is the fulfillment of God's covenant promise to David, that David will always have somebody to sit on the throne. He's worthy of that because of his affliction. So Ethan is looking at this when he says, how long, O Lord, how long do we have to wait? Ethan doesn't know the full answer to that question because he's on the other side of history. You and I do. You and I do know that Jesus is the finished work of God. But even Ethan cannot help but worship. The full answer to his question, how long, O Lord, Ethan doesn't really know. But he knows part of it. He knows part of the answer is to take a posture of worship, knowing that God's character uh, calls for that. God's character calls him to worship. And God will be faithful to his covenant, just like he said he would. So we know that God is worthy of worship because of his character. We know that God will be faithful to his covenant. And we see that God invites us to make our complaint. It's okay. We'll touch more on that here in just a second here. But I I want you to, to see... Ethan doesn't have all the answers in front of him, but he still chooses to take a posture of worship. He even starts off the psalm that way. You and I can do the same thing. We probably have a set of circumstances we don't know the answer to. You know, I I just had the surgery about 11 weeks ago, and I still wake up some days in overwhelming pain. It really hurts. And I have prayed many times, Lord, how long do I have to suffer through this? Many of you probably have some sort of circumstance that you're like, God, how long do I have to wait for you to show up on this one? Well, it's right here in the Psalms. You can make a complaint. In fact, researchers tell us that the first 145 books of the Bible are dominated by this idea of lamenting or complaint. The last five books are about praise, all of them. So we can always take that complaint and see God turn it into praise. All right, let me roll this forward to you. Three things I want to finish with that I want you to take with you this week. Number one, God rules over everything in your life. Go back to our first part, the part about God's character. God has power. God has authority. God is righteous. God is just. God's steadfast love is over you, and God is faithful. He will always finish the thing that he starts. If he has started a work in you, he will finish it. Not just because you're awesome, although all of you are awesome, but because he is awesome and he will not deny his character. He is faithful. God is not surprised by anything going on with you. God is not shaken by anything going on with you. God is not wringing his hands about, what am I going to do about this situation? No, God is on his throne. He's in control of everything in your life and mine. 
Second thing, God's plan always results in his praise. God is playing the long game. You and I are not very good at playing the long game. But all of the things that are happening with you, all of the things that are happening with me are all pointed toward the end of history where everything will give praise to God. Now, you and I struggle with this. I struggle with this. Maybe I shouldn't speak for you, but I struggle with this because I am an instant gratification kind of guy. Anybody feel that way? I hold in my hand here a device. I could go to Amazon.com, order virtually anything I want, and it can be at my house in days, hours, if I'm willing to pay a little bit of money, right? I could, just with a few keystrokes here, have pizza waiting for us in just a few minutes so that we all have, I'm not going to do that. Maybe one of you is feeling generous and wants to do that. I'm not going to do that today. But right, instant gratification, don't get me wrong, I love this tool. It's great. It makes my life better, appreciably. But this tool and tools like it and the mindsets that this feeds have the potential to crush my walk with God because I get used to instant gratification. I sometimes treat God like he is an app on my phone. You know, I will open this and be like, God, I would like to be healed, and I would like my daughter to do well in her science test, and I would like my dad to have a great day, and I would like to not get in an accident on the way to work, and beep, 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 great, submit, good. I'm all, I, I want prayer to work that way. I want my life with God to work that way, and yet it doesn't. God's playing the long game, and that's okay. We can trust him. Remember, our man Ethan did not see the final answer to his question. It didn't happen until almost 600 years after he existed. Because the answer to his question, of course, was Jesus. And yet he takes the posture of worship and appreciation of God's character. You and I can do the same thing. So don't treat God like Amazon.com. And I'm telling myself that too. Don't get me wrong. Um, so that leads us to number three. All that said, God can handle your complaints. He can handle it. If you've got a beef with God, take it to him. If there's one thing that this psalm teaches us, it's that if we have a complaint, if we have a beef with God, if we've got a bone to pick with God, as a Ryan Adams song might tell us, go. He can handle it. But look at what Ethan does. It's instructive for us. He bases his complaint in God's character and God's promises. He doesn't, pray to, he doesn't try and pray God into his circumstances. He lists his circumstances to God. He's not trying to fit God into this mold that he has. He's not treating God like a jukebox or a vending machine. He's saying, God, your character and your promises are such that I know you aren't okay with this. And he rests in that and he trusts in that. You and I can do the same thing. You can make your complaint to God. It's okay. He can handle it. Base it in his character and his promises and watch what he does. I'm going to ask the band to, to come up right now. Some of you have probably noticed uh, verse 52 here. It, it's, it's almost an afterthought. It's a little coda, and yet I think it's very instructive to us. Verse 52, he says, Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. He circles it right back to where he started, and that is a time of worship. So we're going to worship a little bit before we go. I'll let the band play a little bit. But I imagine this morning that some of you probably have a complaint you want to make. You've got something going on in your life and you want to give it to God. We're going to give you a few moments to do that. We'll take a time of quiet prayer just for a couple minutes here. And then I'll close this. The band will play. And yeah, if you've got a complaint, you can make it. It's okay. This is your time. 
So what I want you to do for a couple minutes here is think about the character of God. Think about the promises that God has made to you. And then if you've got a complaint, make it. Put it before the Lord. Let's take a couple moments to pray. I'll close this out here in just a second. issue in their life, whether it's health or a relationship or a situation at work or something with their neighbors or, or just life being hard where they are coming to you and say, Lord, how long, how long do I have to wait? Lord, when are you going to do something about that? And Lord, I just sit right there in them with their complaint this morning. Lord, I hope that you are reminding them even now of your character and your covenant you are faithful, that you always finish the work that you start. And Lord, that you love it when we bring our request to you, calling on you to show us how great you are, even in the stuff in in our life that might be really hard. Lord, hear our prayer. Hear our prayer, Lord. Give ear to our complaint, Lord. Give us a mind and a heart to trust you, knowing that you are faithful and will always be trust you in the name of Jesus. 